You're listening to Vardensrama's podcast. Conversations with aliens of extraordinary ability. Hi everyone, this is Aliens of Extraordinary Ability. I'm Rodrigo Gattaz, your host for today. The Aliens of Extraordinary Ability is a podcast by Burns Roma. And today is episode number one on local perspective on solidarity. Today I will be talking with uh, my two guests, Mary Turkeman and Tatiana Lozano on organized solidarity actions by and for artists. We will be covering various immigration issues and other challenging scenarios for artists uh, with a non-EU background based here in Norway. Today is a very rainy day, uh, at least here in the in the center part of the of the country. Um, and I just want to welcome Nedi and Tatiana. How are you guys doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Hello there. I'm also doing good. Thanks. Glad. Thank you so much, you both, for being here. I guess I will start by telling everyone else how did we meet in in case, you know, like someone is curious about that. So in 2016, I joined the Art Academy, well, the Master in Arts and Public Space at, at Kiel. And during that time, I met I met Mehdi through some mutual friends we had at the Academy. Uh, we just met outside of the, just by the, by the Academy uh, main entrance and just exchange some some thoughts on you know who are we and like nice to meet you all those kind of things so i don't know if you remember that maybe it's it's been a while though so it, I it has been a while remember very clearly <laughs> i do remember that really clearly actually uh, and back then i was uh, actually still a student at the university of oslo so i uh, I, I spent some time around kio and i had some friends that i hung out with so uh, I do remember when you had f- just became a student, and um, it, I think I think we we kind of connected from 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 the first time. So I do remember that. Yeah, from day one, I think like we, we clicked very well, as you said, and and became friends friends quite quite fast actually. Uh, and on the other side, um, Tatiana and I haven't met in person, <laughs> no. like face to face, but we're like sort of like a kind of like virtual bodies. Uh, Tatiana and I met through the Barthes Roma Network online on the Facebook group. And then since then, we've been exchanging some thoughts and like uh, just trying to keep to keep each other updated on our on our lives. So thanks for being here, Tatiana, as well. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, today it's um, we're going to have uh, we're going to have a moment to to speak a little bit about uh, how you guys came to Norway. Uh, what are your interests and how have you experienced different solidarity gestures by by that community based on the different challenges that you have faced as um, immigrant artists here in Norway uh, at different times, uh, different years, but nonetheless, you can maybe like share with, with us a little bit of your experience. So uh, maybe I, I was wondering if you could start like telling us a little bit about um, why do you come to Norway? When do you come to Norway? And what, what are you doing at the moment here as well? Yeah, sure. Um, I first came to Norway in 2015. And I came here for um, um, doing a master's studies. I, my background is in English literature. Uh, my bachelor's studies, which I did in Iran. I'm, uh, I am from Iran. And I came to Norway to uh, basically 
um, continue my academic um, studies. Um, but um, so um, it wasn't in my initial planning to to join the arts academy. That happened later. But I came in 2015. And I studied for a year in Stavanger, and that's where I am right now. Uh, I studied a year um, before I came to Oslo, and that's when I met you in 2016, where I did my master in um, also in English literature. And yeah, as I already mentioned, I I was always interested in art, and I had friends who were studying art at the academy. It also goes back uh, all the way back to when I was living in Iran, where I would also have a lot of friends uh, in the art university. And I don't know, I, I've, I've, I've seen myself as part of that community somehow, even though I haven't been a, a, a practicing artist, let's say, constantly. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks. I, I think it's been quite a journey, the one you had um, since you arrived in, in, in Norway. And, and we're going to hear more about that later. Uh, but I was thinking maybe, Tatiana, you could uh, tell us a little bit more about you and how you ended up being all the way, you know, traveling all the way from Colombia to Norway and settling down here. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I am from Bogota in Colombia. Um, and uh, I came here in 2012 uh, to study an MA in Fine Arts at the Bergen Art Academy. And then I think since then, or like after my education finished, uh, I got some uh, grants from the government, from Cultural and MBCO. And then uh, I was able to continue doing projects here. But I think always the visa panorama was very uncertain because it was, I, I could never find like a sort of permit that, that was fit, like that, that I would fit in with my characteristics in a way after being a student. So then I just started jumping into a series of permits that were kind of leading to nowhere, or like plusing to, to nothingness in a way, because none of those permits were giving grounds to, to a permanent residence. But I was not uh, really aware of that in a way. I was kind of going with the, with the flow and just getting permit by permit until, until things got a bit wrong on, uh, on 2020. <laughs> and then I guess we will talk a bit more about that later. I'm currently running an artist-run house in Bergen called Palmera, and I work independently with uh, artistic and curatorial projects as well, a bit around. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess like as as we as we say often, you have to take it one year at a time because basically that's that's how that's how uh, immigrant artists have to deal with yeah. with, Im with immigration processes and like different bureaucracies. Uh, but since we're on it, um, maybe you could tell us um, what happened in in 2020, just last year, um, where when your your visa permit was was denied by the immigration agency here, they would. Yeah, well, uh, I I don't know how to make it short, but I'll try my best. It was it was just a mistake take in one of the or like in the in my last application i thought i was renewing the the permit i had before and then what i didn't know is that that permit was not able to they weren't able to renew that but they didn't say anything when i submitted the application they just they just stayed very long like 
they just took very long time uh, with uh, with uh, the the application and then when i got the answer i had basically one week to pack my stuff and go <laughs> because because they gave me a permit this is the thing they didn't they didn't den- deny the permit they gave me one week permit which is very ridiculous a one week um, permit yeah exactly <laughs> they oh gave me a one week oh permit God. Um, because they weren't able to renew the previous one, right? But instead of giving you a heads up, then you just get this very short notice. So I was very stressed out in all my systems, of course. And, um, but then, um, I found, or like I talked to many people calling loads of times. And then somebody told me that I could go outside Schengen and then basically for one night and then come back as a tourist because now Colombians, we have open uh like like we can come as a tourist uh, as a tourist to schengen so um so that was like a little trick i got there and then from there i took it quite uh you know just going with the flow and then and then i went out for away i went away for a week and then i came back basically to pack everything i had during those three tourist months and then yeah yeah, so you were in a way like gathering a little bit of like tips and and you know uh, pieces of advices from from friends from like who who were who were the people like help, helping you out with it. Uh, I mean, I was ready to uh, when I came back from Croatia. I was ready to pack my house and really go because it's been nine years or eight years of exhaustion. And accidentally, I ran into this group that you guys started uh, making in Oslo, and uh, and then I got to know some people. I or like I I I met some people I knew already from before, and then I met you guys, and then I I saw that uh, everybody was applying to this kind of permit I didn't know about before, or I tried once and I failed because I didn't know really how to do it. So then I got a lot of support from the group and uh, advice for, from, um, yeah, from people in there who has applied and very generous, actually, like people sharing applications and things that usually you want or people won't share. So, so easy. So then I, I took my last chance. And then, yeah, then I kind of started the process of applying again. I don't know where I took my strength from, but, uh, but uh, luckily, I decided to go for it, and then I now that's the permit I currently have, uh, which is one foot into a process of getting a permanent residency. Hopefully, congratulations! So, thank you. Although it's not an easy permit to keep up, no. especially in these times. Now I'm gonna do the renewal, and it feels a little bit of a of a stress there. But yeah. But it, it, we, yeah, I'm I'm very positive that things will uh, work out. But it's it's quite interesting to see how how you can, you know, now talk about this experience in a sort of like in a lively way, and and I wonder how was how was your experience at that time? Because having to pack uh, your life, you know, you, you you were living at that time, you had been living in Norway at that time for like eight years, so. To, to get a letter or to get a message saying you have to pack eight years of your life in, within a week. I, I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a, a lively thing to, 
to encounter, I, I guess. No, it was not. And I, I also must say that, that this is not the first time I get very disappointed about UAE. So, so I have some sort of experience also with not, but this is, this was the very first time that I, I had no choice. I had no option. I couldn't appeal the decision. I couldn't, because other times I have appeal decisions and I have, yeah, I have made it through that. So, so I guess I just had a bit of, um, I was a bit done with all the suffering <laughs> about it. And then, and then also I think it come, it came in a time in my life where I've been doing some practices that are supporting my self uh, development and my, my self being. And then I think, I think that helped. Uh, a lot and then I just kind of of course I was super stressed and I was super sad and I cried and everything uh, but uh, at the same time it was quite quite soon for me or not not soon quick for me to kind of let go of everything and just accept that that as it was and make a decision for my health as well and stop stressing and fighting against the system that is very difficult to fight so so I, I just decided, I think as, as soon or as long as I decided to let go, that's when I ran into this group, actually. Like that's when, when kind of solutions came. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's when solutions came my way in a way. So yeah. Well, I'd like to hear more about the, the life practices that you just mentioned, but for the first, um, I, I wanted to go back a little bit. Um, to hear from Mary, what was your your particular experience in this sense, Mary, in to, in 2018? Yeah, so 2018, um, I finished my studies at the University of Oslo, and and by then I was thinking like the last six months of my uh, of writing my thesis, I was um, of course thinking a little bit about about the future, about what I want to do, and I've al- I had I had already become quite interested in in kind of um, new approaches in academia about interdisciplinarity, about mm, more creative uh, research that kind of has the ambition to reach out to the public, to kind of bridge this gap between academia and and the outside. So I I was very engaged in, in all sorts of theories and discussions around these things. And uh, as I mentioned, um, having um, been attending a lot of um, things uh, in in the art uh, university, uh, art academy already, like talks and I don't know uh, performances and such, I I started to consider with a suggestion um, coming from a friend that maybe it can be an interesting choice to to consider studying art. Uh, as a as an opportunity for me to kind of work on methodology, or I don't know, use this time to to develop some uh, interesting, um, um, yeah, approaches to 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 research, and uh, that's how I decided because I felt somehow that I'm not quite ready to go on to do a PhD right away. Um, so I wanted to continue researching, but I just didn't know how to to pursue that. Anyway, um, I, I finally decided to, to apply for the school um, for, um, to Kiel. And I, I wasn't really sure whether I need to apply for a bachelor or a master because, well, technically speaking, I was a master graduate. 
Um, but then I felt I didn't have like much of a portfolio or, I mean, I hadn't spent so much time as an artist, so it didn't, uh, it didn't uh, look uh, wrong for me to, to start from scratch. And I applied for a bachelor's and at Kyo, I got in and uh, I got into trouble uh, getting a residence permit based on, uh, based on a bachelor program. Um, the basic reason was that uh, I have finished a master and the, the natural way of progressing for me is to do a PhD uh, or in some exceptional cases to do another master. That's not what normal people do, let's say. <laughs> My case was kind of strange. Well, I guess, I guess, um, I guess, like we've talked about this before. Uh, we talk about academia, mobility within the academia, and and how you know the immigration restrictions and regulations prevent uh, different individuals to downgrade in a way uh, from, let's say. Uh, PhD to a master or master to a bachelor. So in a way, you always have to go in a way up in the, in the academic ladder in a way. Yeah. I, I think I, I got it right. Uh, or let me know if, if I did. No, exactly. But I think, I think that kind of makes sense. Come on. I mean, it, it's not like, uh, there is some reason to that a kind of regulation, but I, uh, so I know that my case was quite strange. Uh, but I always think uh, that uh, rules need to have exceptions and it's better if they do, at least, let's say that. And when I was applying for a visa, I already kind of expected that this can be an issue. So what I did was I had gathered all these letters from both my uh, uh, teachers and supervisor at my former university and also uh, one or two from Kyo. Uh, uh, from people that I had discussed my plan with. So these letters were kind of, uh, I hope that they could clarify that I have a plan. You know, I'm not just doing this random thing uh, just to get a visa. You know, I, I have something in my mind. Uh, but those letters didn't seem to, to come into effect or have any influence on the decision. So, yeah, I mean, there should be an opportunity for people to, to explain themselves and, um, and become exceptions and they, there were already people at the school back then who had a phd and were doing a bachelor who had a master and were doing a bachelor but they were uh not non-europeans so they're so they had more freedom in that sense but i mean uh, because uh it could be the case that some people need or want to do that and i think um yeah you, you should be able to should be given the opportunity to kind of defend your case. I guess I guess we can explore this as a scenario into other aspects of life where non-Europeans are always in some way in different degrees uh, restricted from this sort of like freedom of movement within, you know, everyday life. Um, it's not only in uh, the educational system, I, I will imagine. Um, I, I think... No, just there is something Mary said was very interesting about uh, being taken as a as a special case or as an exception, right? And I think that's the utopia, uh, and, and I don't know if that will ever be possible. But that that has been one of my 
biggest questions uh, about this and not just in my case but in many cases because we are all very different cases and what I'm wondering about is is if it's worth it to look into into some sort of petition that appeals to that individuality or how how people is assessing those applications of course they are following a set of rules of course they are by the book and it cannot go outside from there but how do we then speak up and try to make it so so eventually at least for for art which is which is a discipline that doesn't fit into any Uday form that you look through their website if if there could be something i just i don't i i would like to hear your opinion on this both of you or you really if you have any thoughts on on this hmm. no but but i i, I think uh, i think i get your point i mean we're we're right now in a in between space we're in uh in a limbo because the elections are uh, approaching soon uh um, this fall and at the moment i don't see a possibility for uh, changes or drastical changes in the immigration law or for that matter in, in, in most of the government's politics. Um, but I do think that we need to start working now towards uh, building bridges with different politicians that could carry our struggle and, and for them together with us develop a political strategy that can really um, propose different protocols on how to assess this application for artists. Uh, it's not only a question of how, but it's also a question of why. And uh, so many, like a big issue, a big challenge for, for non-EU artists here is, um, you know, economic justice has become a more utopia, right? And, uh, and labor, in my view, I, I don't think labor, labor is capable to give income to all any, any longer. I think um, you can see how the welfare state has been weakened, how a lot of things have been privatized. Um, these have direct impact on the gig economy, on the cultural economy. There's a cultural deficit at the moment as well. Um, and we are sort of like, we have our hands quite tight in the tight end in the sense that we can only work within the art field. And so uh, that definitely like, you know, reduce the different like, you know, these multiple sources of income, just reduce it to one, which is the art and, and culture. And I mean, it's no, it's not surprising to know that, um, you know, a, non, a, a Norway based or, uh, or let's say a European artist or a Norway Russian artist make 150% more than a non-EU artist living in Norway in terms of income. That's sort of like the average at the moment. But yeah, I guess like we, there are many things that we have to tackle. And, and for this, this particular conversation, I think we, we have to envision how, how solidarity, how practices of solidarity, how practices of, uh, you know, instituting new, uh, informative network are so, are so important for the ecosystem of non-EU artists in the country and to try to support each other. And that's why I was like quite, I mean, Verdant Drum has, um, was initiated like just last year in March, but before that I was quite, um, touched by, um, but how the, the, 
how, how many classmates came together in 2000, in 2018 to support him and to show, to show him that he was not just a great professional, but also a great person. And, uh, at the same time, understanding that his value was not based only on like this result oriented, uh, kind of like culture, but it was also, um, valued in the sense of like the, the social impact and the cultural impact he made in the life of others while he was living here. Um, at least that's, that's how I see it. And so maybe I was thinking, how was it for you to experience this? Um, your friends and, and non-friends, also strangers coming together. I think there were more than a hundred people, um, that decided to, to self-organize and, and show, show you their support. Um, and I, I was just like, how, how did you, how do you experience that moment? Um, uh, it started off by my classmates, uh, who, whom I had spent a little bit more than a month, uh, together with in that class uh, of 2018. And actually they are having their graduation show as we speak, uh, in Oslo. So that's kind of a interesting coincidence. And they, uh, were just unwilling to, uh, accept, uh, the case that I have to leave. And I'm not speaking about all of the students, but there were a group of students in my class that, and, and a few others from, uh, from other years in the school that uh, were unwilling to accept this. So, uh, I had almost about 10 days left before I had to leave the country. And, um, they very, uh, almost very independent for me, uh, organized, uh, and kind of made made this uh thing happen which ended up becoming um a very uh, performative protest let's say to to UDI which ended which happened the day before I left so uh it, it was just uh amazing for me to see how how they how they kind of uh cared about this and got together and, and worked so uh, effortlessly in just a few days to organize something that became very memorable for me and I, and I hope for a few other people. Um, definitely, that was an example of solidarity uh, for me. That was definitely experienced as a moment of, of solidarity. And um, when it comes to... Um, what you said, Tatiana, about utopia, I, I, I totally think it's utopian. I mean, um, I could somehow uh, see myself as being naive sometimes when it comes to regulations. And that was, that's why I, I appreciate uh, Verdensrum so much, because back then when this happened in 2018, Verdensrum didn't exist yet. So it was a year after, uh, I think, that, he, that it was formed. And I appreciate it because it's um, dealing with these issues with, with an eye to the political, the economic details involved uh, in all of this. So that's what, what I lack sometimes. And that's something that I can learn from, from being a part of this Wadensrume uh, group. But back then, I think what kind of uh, brought us together was just, um, let's say, an emotional response, uh, which could be 
very utopian in its core about uh, how we expect that uh, studying at the school should be like, you know, if not how living in the city should be like, that's like the bigger picture. But we had certain uh, unhappy feelings about the circumstances of the school back then. And that wasn't just... Uh, reduced to my case but it, there was this me too movement going on back then so it was this atmosphere of um, um demanding change uh in kyo and i think that it all came together and uh, became this act which uh yeah you could always see as wishful but i agree with uh rodrigo how it's um a lot of the things that come off such uh, wishful thinkings, let's say, uh, that is usually overlooked, like the way community um, is formed or sometimes even temporary communities, doesn't matter, but how communities are formed and how information is shared and how, how goals are created, let's say, or just simply how um, moments of vulnerability is shared among uh, a group of people. So. Yeah, I can speak more about it uh, in a bit, but yeah, definitely for me, uh, a good memory and uh, a good um, example of how people can come together and that how that can have an effect on other things uh, than the result of that political decision. It has a lot of other impacts. Hmm. I would like to follow up what you just said. Um but just reading a, a little fragment of the text you shared with us. And it says, had this solidarity not happened, I would have left Norway in a different condition. But I left the day after the slow walk, feeling empowered and warm. This solidarity managed to generate a very nice goodbye. Uh, and institutions are very bad at saying goodbye. And this sort of like stuck in my head since the first time I read the text and what happened that day? What, what happened in that slow walk that made you feel that way? Um, I think it's a, a quite, quite a nice statement to say the institutions are very bad at saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. And then I, I was wondering like, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the slow walk uh, was, um, started to take shape in the last week uh, of my staying in Oslo and uh, it it gradually took form. We were, uh, my friends, they were having meetings and I would join some of those and brainstorm together with them how this can take shape so that we can kind of um, uh, have a sort of um, collective response to what we saw as unjust uh, conditions of the regulations and um, so these these brainstormings they would they would kind of uh, expand from my case and I, I actually uh, actively push try to push it away from a focus on me in particular but into to kind of toward uh, underlying structures there were that was also kind of putting artists in general, European or non-European, into to vulnerable situations. And uh, it ended up becoming um, um, a walk that we did in slow motion. 
from the school first to uh, UDI and from UDI to uh, UNE, which is that organization that you kind of uh, send your uh, appeal to. If the ca- if a case has been denied, you have the right to to kind of appeal to that, and then you then your case is processed by UNE. So we did this kind of symbolic movement uh, by repeating the pattern that I had mm, mm, kind of gone through by applying to UDI and then to UNE. So we kind of went together uh, in this path. Uh, and there was, a, for many people, that was the one and only time for them to, to make this journey because they don't have to uh, kind of um, apply to anything and they don't have anything to do with these organizations. So um it what we did this slow motion walk and we 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 read uh some pieces of text that we had written together and uh we generally kind of tried to 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 be together in a way that um as i mentioned earlier i don't think we were all expecting that the decision would be um kind of uh, changed overnight i was leaving the day after and uh, at least me personally i had come into peace with the fact that i'm leaving the day after and this is not about changing the decision but it's more about uh, a kind of goodbye and just to explain more about what i meant that institutions are bad at saying goodbye i think um inclusion uh, is a big thing in all institutions like when you join a, an institution a school a new a workplace they always have this introduction week they have this um kind of policies or i don't know programs put in place that want to welcome people to people to to make them feel welcome and to include them and make them feel included so this inclusion is usually manifesting in the beginning of these processes of in the welcoming process but i think a sense of being included is much much more than that it's 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 more it's more about being the acknowledgement that you have an impact on on that environment that you kind of uh have been have been exchanging things with others i mean these things make you feel uh, as if you belong or that you inclu- or that you're included and i think uh yeah when it comes to saying goodbye uh maybe institutions uh already feeling that they have done their work of inclusion uh tend to forget that that the departure is as important as the the um the beginning part and um that slow walk for me was definitely uh, a a good um departure uh, which may- left me feel very warm and and loved and empowered uh because of this being seen even when i'm leaving you know so that's what i meant by that absolutely and to to move on on, on the other side of of um to try to get a little bit of the nuances of uh your your experience, Tatiana. Maybe you could uh, you could tell us how how was your what were your impressions when um, during this time you um, you had to you had to leave temporarily temporarily the country. 
where do you find solidarity? Where do you find support? Um, and how that made it made or not made your departure uh, a less um, less difficult experience? Yeah, well, you know, in my in my experience, I, I think there are two instances. I think there is a lot of there is a lot about uh, feelings and emotions and how friends and the art community and people around you feel for you, uh, which I think is the most beautiful and important in a way. Of course, you get then the other part of the support, which is uh, institutions giving you precious letters of support and of recommendation and like for this permit, like you, you know, they ask for these intentions of talent that people want to work with you. So, I mean, because of, because of the position I have, I guess, and because of these many years of running a project in Bergen and working with artists and with institutions and so on. Um, I think, I think I've been very lucky getting, getting, I mean, I, I've never gotten no, when I ask for, when I knock a door asking for, for a letter or for, for a recommendation. So that's kind of like the material, the materials way of uh, solidarity, if you will. But, uh, but I think that the energy of people thinking positive and thinking about you and feeling for you. That's the best. And actually friends, they like, they, they laugh often because they, you know, like there's nothing nobody can really do when you are in this situation. I don't know how is it for you, Mary, but I think, I, I think it's pretty much, even if you have the right papers, sometimes it will depend on who is reading those papers, what kind of mood they woke up in. You know, like I don't, I, I think this is very, because I have witnessed this with friends. I have witnessed this with other cases. I have witnessed this myself. Uh, I have even been talking to lawyers that look at my application and say, I have all the papers and all the right to appeal and so on. And then this gets a denial. So it's really, it's, it's a bit of a hopeless situation, not, not wanting to, to make it negative for everyone. I'm just talking about my own experience that has been both positive and negative. But um, but when friends ask me what they can do, then I think that the first thing I answer is just to think positively and to send good energy to it because I think that makes a lot. And then what I would say to institutions if they are asking what they can do for us, um, I think that they could be a bit more aware of 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 us, of our group, of this community and kind of enhance the, the opportunities they could give uh, for us in our different positions and in, in our different particular cases to kind of uh, be supported by them. And I know running a place, I know it's not easy just, you know, like just to open up a position for someone. I don't even have a position at my place. So I, I know like it's not, it's not a super easy shift. But I think just creating the awareness around about our situation and our group can give people a bit more input in, in how they could help us if there is, if there are like uh, available temporary jobs or, or things we could collaborate with them. Then that's, that's a good way to start like awareness and energy. I think those words are key. That's quite interesting. I think that I, 
I don't know. I, I wanted us to to maybe share with others uh, what do we think are is the importance of um, coming together and organizing, um, in particular in the times that we're living up at the moment. Um, I very much know by 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 firsthand experience how how hard has been to navigate all these you know, expectations to, you know, hyper-perform as an immigrant and to always do twice or triple the amount of work that other regular person will do. Um, and, and the amount of bureaucracy that in a way sort of like um, little by little, year by year, sucks a part of your life out and, and your energy and, and exhaustion and fatigue. Yeah. Uh, and this exhaustion and fatigue is something that I have experienced on a on an individual level, but to be able to articulate that, not to articulate, but to be able to experience that as a collective body without necessarily having to be friends or without necessarily having to be a single community, but a group of people that can form themselves in you know multiple ways, in multiple ways of um, of being together within that network. I think that's one of the things that have supported my, my journey the most uh, for the past year, at least. And um, it's, it was quite clear that beyond the fact that we're artists, just as people, like the, the importance of really thinking beyond um, um, what it really means to institute uh, a collective body, what it really means to form a collective body uh, for, you know, try to envision what mutual support infrastructures we can build for each other, how we can, you know, also at the same time, yeah, tackle this, uh, you know, economic injustice and which is very present, is very precarious even before the pandemic, but even more so now yeah. for many artists. Um, it's not only a issue of immigration, it's an issue of labor and labor makes you makes it impossible at, in this current condition to achieve an immigration status which is only based on result oriented it's only based on income um for you know uh, when they assess your application for for a visa for instance yeah and i think even if you get even if you get i mean it's a little bit, it, it continues being a little bit exhausting, even though you made it to a permit because, because, uh, for instance, how do you keep up, for instance, the, the, the company and the income you're mentioning without a right of a mixed economy, for example? So, uh, even if you get a 50% position for somewhere for which you need a special permission <laughs> to, to, to do as well. Then that, but then that, that 50% economy doesn't plus to your economy in a way is your company that has to make the most out of it. So it's always little things on the way. So you might be walking towards something, but then there is, I feel there is always a lot of obstacles in the way. And that's, that's where. Um, I guess this collective awareness can, can play a good role uh, in. Um, I just remember now that one of my bad experiences with this in these years of, of permits, um, it was one year that I was appealing a decision where I couldn't be a student, uh, because I signed up for a master in, I think it was a bit of the same as, as you or like similar with you, Mary, that 
I, I had a master degree already and then I was doing a second master. So that was, that was not possible because I should go to a PhD level or something like that. So I was appealing that decision, um, with the, with the help of the, of uh, the person running the curatorial program. She has been wonderful. Uh, and then, and then I was forbidden to work for a year. I was forbidden to get income for, for the, for the, for the time they were assessing my appeal because I was not having a legal permit in that sense. I was, I was allowed to live in the country, but I was not allowed to, to work. So that was another form of solidarity. Um, a lot of friends or not a lot, but, uh, a few friends chip in with the uh, with economy and I was living on my money on my friend's money uh for a while and then now I have paid back everything which is it's great but I had one year of no income if you can imagine that and then I have I had good, very good friends and I was very good supported by by my best friends which I'm very grateful for if they are listening <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will be listening to this I mean, also, I wanted to mention this is a, uh, or it's meant to be also a community channel podcast. So, uh, for everyone listening to this first podcast, if you have, uh, an exhibition coming up or event, um, you know, whatever you are organizing or you have some thoughts or you want to promote some, uh, someone or something, uh, just send us an email and we will try to accommodate that, include that in the next episode. So, yeah. That, that was sort of like the, the propaganda minute. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> I think maybe I interrupted you, so just go ahead. Uh, not anything special other than the fact that I, I admit that I, it's not only me, but a lot of people who are quite naive about uh, regulations, um, especially when we're talking about uh, people those people who don't have to to apply for these residence permits and stuff, uh, they are quite unaware of the process. And that's one discussion about the regulations, about how political action could be made effectively, um, used effectively to change perhaps some regulations in favor of people who need uh, the support. That's one uh, very interesting and important discussion. But something that I already mentioned um, was that for me, it was just um, solidarity is also about just general expressions of naive freedom. Let's call it naive, but not mean anything negative by that. It's just um, uh, an opportunity for, for people to come together to, to demand change and to a kind of kind of exercise of a way of being together that is not so available on the everyday basis uh, and that's partly what kind of made uh, the action that we took so so memorable and so effective is that i could experience and others in that in that action could experience something that is is not so often you know um because we were so maybe focused on the expert regulations and st stuff maybe maybe we have forgotten that we also have the right to 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 just demand and to wish you know to dream sometimes i know that sounds a bit cheesy but i think uh there is a reason why those ideas have become cheesy you know 
Yeah, it's not cheesy at all. I love it. It's Absolutely. not cheesy at all. No, it's it. not cheesy at all. I think it's a key point. Yeah, I think I usually say to people that dreaming is one of the only things that doesn't cost money. <laughs> so, like it's for free. So you can dream as much as you, yeah. as you want. Yeah. But I think it is, it is a, it is a great point in the sense that it refers to culturally engaged politics. And really, it also shows how, um, you know, how we should be careful about romanticizing, uh, solidarity and care. Like those two things, those two concepts are very much saturated nowadays, at least within the art world. You know, there are certain like mainstream, um, you know, uh, motives that run throughout uh, different periods, but um, how do we produce tools for artists that enable enable them to create, um, to make real political change? That, that I think is something that it goes maybe beyond a little bit of the traditional sense of thinking about solidarity, uh, but also like thinking solidarity as a potential political tool if it's well articulated um, by providing knowledge and tools that um, artists can use to to really advoc advocate for for each other and to advocate to um, to make changes to to the government policies to to you know um, to be active uh, if not activists uh, but also to be uh, I don't know restivists in the sense that. I mean, who, who really gets to, to rest, who really gets to rest is definitely not non-EU artists have, whom have to perform, hyper-perform all the time. So yeah, I, I wanted to share that last part with you guys and thank you so much for, uh, for being here. It's been a great conversation. I hope we can repeat this at some other time and yeah, until, until the next episode. And thank you very much for this very interesting conversation and yeah hopefully I'll, I'll see you in person soon thank you so much thank you so much for having us rodrigo and thank you so much Mary. it was very nice to meet you through here now we have two virtual two virtual bodies <laughs> or i have more of those but yeah but uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully next time we'll meet face to face yeah absolutely thank you great have you both uh, a great day you too goodbye you too bye 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 As we wrap up this episode, we leave you with a live audio feed from outside the UDI building. Listen closely to the frequencies of immigration bureaucracy.